Hello, everybody. My name's Sean, and you're listening to Incredible Discourse, the podcast where we explore the past, we explore exploring the past, and we spend a little too much time in Japan. Today, we continue our journey through the story of the Japanese island. There are several specific topics that I would like to take a deeper dive into, but I want to make sure that we have some basic ground covered before we get really deep into it. Throughout these 13 episodes, we will cover the entire span of Japanese history, from the early hunter gatherers of the Jomon to the newest era, Reiwa. This will introduce the general outline of Japanese history for those who are not familiar with it and begin to contextualize famous events and people. Today, we find ourselves in the Tokugawa period. Exciting time. Now, we're very well on our way to reaching modern Japan, but we have not yet left medieval Japan. Now, there are three great shogun,、uh, shoguns and shogunates. The shogunates are the Kamakura, the Ashikaga, and the Tokugawa. We now see how, or we saw previously, previously on Incredible Discourse, we saw how the Kamakura and the Ashikaga rose to power and fell from internal conflict and turmoil. We surveyed the Sengoku period and now have arrived at Edo, the largest city in the world, which became Tokyo, the largest city in the world today. The Edo period is another name for the Tokugawa period because Edo now becomes the Cultural, political, social, military capital of the Japanese islands. The Tokugawa or Edo period is also when Japan closed itself off to the world. The seeds of nationalism took root and the cultures we associate with traditional Japan today solidify. All this and more today on Incredible Discourse. So now the Tokugawa rule lasted from 1603 to 1867. So it was there for quite a, quite a bit of time. The Tokugawa period lasted approximately 300 years, and the events can be grouped into basically you know, into basic four sections 1600 to 1640, the Tokugawa formation. Then we get some like turmoil, and then from 1770 to 1800, we have cultural influence sneaking in, and we meet the Russians for the first time. And then from 1830 to 1860, we have rebellion, reform, and then Matthew Perry. So let's get started. 1600 to 1640, Tokugawa formation. The Tokugawa is led by originally Tokugawa Ieyasu. He gets off to a good start. Winning the Battle of Sekigahara, he becomes shogun. In 1607, he establishes diplomatic ties with Joseon, and he did not invade them. He establishes a relationship of mutual understanding through、uh, not invading each other's countries. So Ieyasu agrees with Joseon not to invade, Joseon agrees not to invade, and everyone's living happy, happy lives.、Um, but in 1611, the Ryukyu kingdoms, the Ryukyu islands, or the Ryukyu kingdom, are absorbed into the Satsuma domain. So the Satsuma domain is at the very southern tip of. Kyushu. They're,、uh, they're a rebellious bunch down there. And they absorb the Ryukyu Islands because at this point, Japan has lost favor with、uh, Ming China, probably from the、uh, Hideyoshi invasions. So the Chinese dynasties and states aren't, aren't too friendly with the Japanese islands and they don't trade with them. But turns out Japan is really into tea 
and a lot of tea comes from China. So they want the tea. They want uh, what else comes from there? A silk, opium, you know, just just some some uh, everyday items. And the the Chinese merchants aren't coming to Japan. So what happens is the Ryukyu Kingdom is still considered in China a vassal state of the Chinese emperor. So what happens is Japan, and specifically the Tsatsuma domain, takes and they they set up a basic control of the Ryukyu Islands, but they don't tell anyone about it. So the Ryukyu Kingdom appears to other foreign nations as an independent state while under the control of the southern uh, Kyushu rulers. So a little tricksy there, you know? And uh, But it gets away. and. The Ryukyu Kingdoms today, the most prominent island is Okinawa. And this is basically, you know, in 1600 is when Okinawa gets brought into the Japanese fold. Not that it ever becomes officially proper Japan, you know, but it is what it is. Fun fact, uh, at this point, 1600s, we have American colonies. So context, context there. But in 1613, the first Japanese diplomatic mission is sent to New Spain, speaking of North America, right? And this starts, well, New Spain is Mexico at this point. And this starts a relationship between Mexico and Japan that basically lasts until today. Mexico has the oldest, um, I guess, continuous diplomatic relations with the Japanese islands. And they're the the only, I guess they're the only country at that point to... um, have diplomatic housing, right? To have their embassy in Tokyo. They were actually gifted a piece of land and uh, it's pretty good, pretty good stuff. They have, they have a special relationship, Mexico and, and Japan. Uh, two years later, after the Japanese and their first diplomat over to um, Mexico, in 1615, well, I'm going to pause there because it's really interesting how the Japanese government and the dip, uh, diplomats, they take part and Actually, Santa Ana had a uh, Japanese medis- medical officer in his uh, his campaigns. That's a fun fact for you right there. Anyway, back to Japan. Because in 1615, Iyasu rounds off of his achievements with the victory in the Battle of Osaka, establishing himself uh, as the supreme military controller of the Japanese islands. He conquers Osaka, and no one else rivals him after that. Uh, the Tokugawa shogunate does not stop at seizing castles. But they get totalitarian on their people. They outlaw foreign books. They raise taxes. Um, then there's a tax rebellion. And then they outlaw large shipyards for boat construction. So essentially, they try to establish control, centralized government control over the money supply, uh, foreign trade, I guess domestic trade, and, um, and cultural production. Right, And this really only serves to create a new class of previous merchants and and sailors and now they're pirates and smugglers so basically all they did was create criminals um and then cultural isolation right so the general cultural isolation that the japanese islands faced during this period were a direct result of tokugawa policy and this isolation led to an intensified internal cultural developments as exposure to the global cultural market was heavily restricted. Now, it's often said that Japan was cut off from foreign trade during the Tokugawa shogunate. But in reality, the importation and export of goods wasn't completely stopped 
it was just held in monopoly by the Tokugawa shogunate. So the shogun permitted traders to come in and out of certain ports like Nagasaki, but only official shogunate you know, merchants were allowed to, to go back and forth. He, you know, they oversaw and personally uh, okayed the trade. It was controlled by the central government, or at this point, technically, the central tent government, the central Tokugawa Bakufu. Now, the Tokugawa shogunate built its rule on its ability to control the population and prevent foreign influences from questioning their authority, foreign influences like Christian missionaries. Now, they developed a culture of nationalism by very clearly defining what was and what was not Japan, right? This constituted a rule based on the increased economic control that the shogun took over the islands, increasing its wealth and power at the same time. The quality of life was also rising in the islands. And this is interesting because usually you would assume that a centralized government taking control of all of the economic happenings of a, of a nation would severely limit economic growth. And it did. But the rate of, of economic, and economic production and growth and wealth in the islands was such that the limits and dampers that the Tokugawa government put on its people were minuscule compared to the general growth and prosperity that the islands enjoyed. So despite there being such strong, heavy sanctioned, the everyday person's life was still getting better and better. And because the general quality of life was increasing, the inconveniences put on it by economic controls were overlooked by the general population because overall life was getting better. If at some point it ceased, they can tolerate it for a while until it starts getting worse because of these economic sanctions. That's when problems happen. But the the dampening of of economic growth from these regulations was overlooked by the population, as as I was saying. But not all the population, because like there are still pirates and there are still smugglers and there are still people who, despite centralized government authority, they're gonna do what they're gonna do, and no one's gonna stop them unless you pull a sword or a gun on them, and then you gotta fire because they're still gonna do their own thing. Thus, the pirates. And the biggest, I guess, one of the most prevalent aspects that the Tokugawa shogunate could not control was the use and development of money. So despite Tokugawa's real, real attempt at restricting what types of monies could be used, various temples, shrines, and daimyos, and even large private companies issued their own money. And because the Tokugawa shogunate was unable to monopolize money, they were unable to completely restrict the growth of, of the economy and their takeover of it, right? Because money, right, if you understand what, what money is, money is a, uh, a medium of exchange that needs to have both commercial, like a change exchange value, and a production value. And when true money is replaced with paper money, such as in China, uh, you, get, you get economic collapses. The Tokugawa shogunate understood this, at least they had a little bit of economic understanding, and they did not completely cripple the Japanese economy by destroying its forms of money, right? So now when we say forms of money, we mean rice, we mean silk, gold, silver, whatever people value, 
becomes money and its value is its worth is equal to how much people value it and there you go so this kind of you know encapsulates tokugawa control over the islands and you know what they were really all about and 1657 the great fire of mereki which is actually 9 years earlier to the london the great london of great london the great fire of london um, occurs in Edo. It burns down approximately 65% of Edo, killing 100,000 people, and it lasted three days. It began while a priest was burning a cursed kimono. At least that's the, the legend, is that a priest was burning a kimono to get rid of it because it was cursed, because the three previous owners of the kimono all died before they even got to wear it, and it was cursed, so he got to get rid of it. But while he was burning it, a gust of wind came in and spread the flames into the building and began the fire. But the fire in general, in addition to starting from these, flame, these, these high winds, it was flamed by them. An oncoming storm had brought strong, strong winds through the city. And the close construction of buildings at this time and the narrow streets and alleys only worked to you know, encourage the fire and help it jump from building to building from alley to alley, from, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood. And by the third day, the winds died down, and the fire was able to finally be put out. But the thick smoke that the fire created was still lingering, and it prevented people from being able to retrieve bodies and begin cleaning up and rebuilding for many days afterwards. And it would take two years to rebuild the city to kind of what it was before the fire. Now, this time, under Tokugawa direction, several new features were added to the city layouts, you know, to prevent the growth of massive fires in the future. They widened the streets, they had the, um, the subsidization of new firefighting departments, and overall, a, a consciousness of fires and the dangers that fires can produce, you know, became an element of the, the popular consciousness. You know, people would get fire insurance. Uh, people created safes. They would dig, um, dig compartments underneath their houses that would they would store their valuables. This way, if there was a fire, they could, you know, the fire wouldn't be able to reach down and burn their goods underground. And it really impacted um, just the the general growth and, and awareness of the city for for a long time to come. But despite the tragedy of the fire, Edo still enjoyed an increased quality of life from the previous generations of the islands, right? They had no war. They had increased goods, increased trade. Despite, you know, the restrictions put on foreign goods coming in, they still got to enjoy a lot of um, the benefits of a global economy, even if not directly, but indirectly. And one of these quality increases, one of these increases in their quality of life can be seen in the development of new schools throughout the cities and a growing number of teachers in rural areas. So education becomes a new important aspect of the islands, right? The shogun, the, the Tokugawa uh, bakufu, promoted Neo-Confucianism and built schools called Hanko, which taught the Chinese classics and were run by samurai. Now, Neo-Confucianism is not to be confused with, Confu I guess, Paleo-Confucianism? There's Confucianism, and then there's Neo-Confucianism. And I think we mentioned this so far uh, in a previous episode. Neo-Confucianism 
is you take Confucianism and you take legalism and you put it together. Because under Confucian ideology, there is no codified legal code. You know, there's no uniformed law. It's just a, you know, a law of ritual and propriety as opposed to legalism, which is ruled by law and punishment. Now, Neo-Confucianism takes those two and puts them together. And if you can understand that, it makes sense why uh, rulers find it much more um, agreeable than just, I guess, what we're going to call Paleo-Confucianism, right? And these Hanko schools taught and promoted Neo-Confucianism among the, uh, the higher classes, like the, the wealthier people, right? Yep, but also, in addition to samurais running the government schools, we also have merchants founding and financing private schools. And these were independent from both the Neo-Confucianism ideologies and the state. So in the Neo-Confucian schools, they were taught the Chinese classics, poetry, music, um, language, arts, whereas in the merchant schools, we're more focused on learning math, grammar, science, like they were the, not the harder subjects, but the more practical subjects, the like salt of the earth subjects, where the government schools were more concerned with teaching, you know, ethics, nationalism, and poetry. Now, this blossoming of learning led to a high literacy rate of 40% of men and 10% of women able to read and write throughout Japan, which for the time period is a very impressive, right? I mean, most European countries didn't have that, uh, that kind of um, literacy. And most countries in Asia didn't have that literacy either. So the Edo period, people learning how to read. Exciting times. But with this influx of learning, the, and Tokugawa defining what and was not Japan, we have the development of kokugaku, which is the formalized topic, like the formalized study of essentially Japanese nationalism. It's the this country learning, and it was established as a proper subject in the schools. Now, kokugaku is a study of Japanese nativism and nativist culture. Now, there's a resurgence of interest in Shinto in the previous period, and that only accelerated with this development of, of, of kokugaku, right? They took this, like, the seeds of what we're growing, and they said, well, you know what? Japan should focus on Japan. We got to go back and get rid of all these foreign, you know, uh, these foreign uh, influences, right? Buddhism is considered a foreign influence because it came from China and India, but in reality, it's been in the islands since like the five, six hundreds. So I don't really know how uh, how more native you can get than that. But you know, they 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 identified Buddhism as a foreign thing, right? Obviously, other foreign influences are more easily identifiable, such as the Portuguese, the Spanish, the British. You know, Christianity in general, um, like Western philosophy and science. You know, by when I say Western, I mean like the Greek philosophers, um, Abrahamic traditions. So they have a lot of new things getting imported into the country where it, it, is, it allows them to say, hey, this is foreign and this is native. And, you know, the uh, Kokugaku wants to focus on, on the nativist stuff. But still, Buddhism has been in the Japanese islands at this point for like a thousand years. And they still think it's, they still consider it a foreign, a foreign influence. 
but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. Now, throughout the 1800s, or the 19th century, if you, if you fancy that, with the overall level of education rising, the population became more difficult to control. In addition to the general literacy, foreign learning had penetrated into the islands. There were secret groups of Catholics scattered throughout the islands, and the people were sharing dangerous ideas. You know, the recent events of the Opium War between Britain and China in the 1840s to 1842 led the Japanese leaders, you know, the Tokugawa government, to uh, believe that it was more vital than ever to keep the islands watertight. You know, we can't let them get in, let alone, you know, have a, an incident like, uh, like the Opium Wars take place in the Japanese islands. And the new laws were created and sought to address the overconsumption of luxuries that the populations enjoyed, such as kabuki, which was a new theater fad that developed in the uh, 19th century, and also print block art. So a lot of kabuki, kabuki started off as, you know, the, like, the theater for, like, it was like, it was a sexy theater. That's exactly what it was. It was like the action movie, explosions, fighting, drama, comedy. It was the, the lowbrow entertainment. And it was also associated with drug use, prostitution, and this was uh, considered a social ill at the time. And fearing that the kind of uh, opium consumption that was taking place in China would come over into Japan, and it's kind of hard to control a population where <laughs> there's a large majority of them addicted to opium, uh, the Tokugawa tried to kind of crack down on these luxury goods. They tried to promote propaganda that would encourage citizens to not indulge as much. You know, they say that indulging in these new luxuries is is un-Japanese. You know, that uh it's not it's not traditional to to be engaged in this kind of activity. Now, the law also attempted to remove the Buddhism from Buddhist traditions <laughs> such as obon so what they did was they took a lot of the Buddhist um, celebrations and festivals and they tried to re rebrand them with Shinto uh, slogans and, and names. Just kind of the same way that French fries tried to become freedom fries, Obon was never going to become whatever Shinto name that they were trying to give it because it's Obon. It's a beautiful festival. You don't need to change it. And even the government trying to change it isn't going to sway the population to do it. So they met very little success. But this attempt to mash Shinto and Buddhism together really did the opposite of what they wanted. Where they wanted to get Buddhism out, they just basically <laughs> pushed Shinto and Buddhism together further. You know, which is why today we see such little separation between the two in the Japanese islands. Now, these laws tried to stop the tide because 11 years later, well, they tried to, and they failed, because 11 years later, in 1853, some black ships arrived in Edo Harbor. Oh yeah, you know, the black ships. The black ships uh, controlled and led by Commodore Matthew Perry. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Matthew Perry, Matthew Perry, not the guy from Friends, but the Commodore, he was an American naval officer, and he has a pretty interesting story. He fought in the War of 1812. He fought in the Barbary Coast War. He fought in the American-Mexican War. He also then wanted to 
get like an easy retirement assignment in France. But instead, they sent him to Japan, and he was not happy about that. So this highly decorated naval officer, he was in control of a shipyard for a very long time in New York. Um, he controlled, uh, he did military exercises off the off, um, Sandy Hook in New Jersey. And they sent him to Japan. And he was like, I do not want to go out. France, send me to France. Everything's nice and beautiful, and I'm going to have a great time. And they sent him to Japan. So off the bat, on his way to Japan, not in a good mood, not a happy man. Um, so anyway, he arrives in Edo Harbor, and he doesn't even get a nice welcome. They kind of just, like, shut him out. They say, you know, can't land here. So what he does is he decides, all right, putting a flag out, a about to go to war flag, and then he takes out all of his 70-something cannons that are on his, his one ship and starts firing blanks at the coast. This does not sit well with the Japanese. It doesn't make them feel too good with this giant war vessel off of their coast, which they kind of don't have an answer to, and it starts firing blanks at them. Um, and then he also sends out his other ships because he, he doesn't come by himself. He has a fleet. His other ships to start surveying the coast. So these ships are going up and down your coast. <laughs> One of the ships is firing blanks at you. It's um, It doesn't feel too good for the Japanese. Now, one of the reasons there's not like a decisive response to this is because uh, the Tokugawa leader at the time, Ieyoshi, is very, very ill. And he can't, he's not really making a lot of decisions. Um, so the rest of the, the government is still trying to like scramble together to figure out how to react to the American ship and its provocations off of the, off the coast. Um, but one counselor decides to go out and accept the letter from Tokugawa. No, on behalf of Tokugawa from Matthew Perry. So as opposed to remember when the Mongols were sending over their letters and saying, Hey, these are our terms. These are our terms. These are our terms. The Japanese just sent him back every time. Nope, 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 nope. This time, when the Americans came over, cracking their in their defenses, one of the guys opened the door and said, "Okay, we'll take your mail," which was a mistake. So Perry said, "You know what? We'll be back in one year. Look at our offer and think about it." So they left, and they come back again in 1854. So now here's really one of the only times where the imperial court, having the name and title of authority, and the shogun having the reality of authority causes causes some problems because Matthew Perry and the American re government represent uh you know representative force show up and they meet with a representative from the imperial court not the shogunate so the imperial court guys he's like yeah it doesn't matter what i do the shogun's in charge american government doesn't know that so when they meet with um what's his face uh akira hayashi Hikira, akira He's a um, imperial court member, and he signs an agreement with Matthew Perry and the American government and the American military. Problem is, the Tokugawa government doesn't has nothing to do with it. So now there's this like miscommunication where the American government thinks that they've signed a a treaty with the with the rulers of of Japan, and, and technically they have, but because the Tokugawa shogunate had nothing to do with it. They haven't really interacted with the real authority of the islands. Either way, two ports get opened up. One is in Hokkaido, and one is in modern-day Shizuoka. So there's two ports that get established and open to American trade. Now, 
even though the Shogun didn't open up trade to Westerners, the, uh, you know, looking at the, the daimyos, the warlords, don't really see it that way. They say, hey, you're the Shogun, and if this happened under your watch, it's kind of your fault. And um, they were not happy with the way he was handling the relations with foreign nations, especially America, England, and, and other, I guess, France and other European nations. So many of the daimyos felt that the Shogun was soft and way too welcoming to foreigners because, remember, 1600 is when that nationalist uh, learning began. So that's 200 years of, um, of the growth of, of Kokugaku, right, of this nationalist learning. So most of these rulers and warlords, pretty stinking nationalist on their, uh, in their understanding of, like, this is Japan, we have a Japanese cultural sphere, and everything outside of it is different and not good. And, and is, bad, is worse than us. It's garbage. So when they see these Europeans coming over, they're like, yeah, we don't really need to, to work with them. And it, you know, they were upset. And they became more upset with time. So some of these decided that if the imperial court is going to be treating with the Americans, they might as well have power. Because, you know what, traditionally, the emperor is the one who rules Japan. He's the father of the nation. They've been learning about how tradition is so much better than the New Age foreign influences that they're like, you know what? We should get the emperor back in power. The shogun is an imposter. He can't be responsible for doing anything. And so we have the beginning of the Boshin War. Now, luckily for the people who supported the emperor, the emperor and the imperial court is the, the government that had been dealing with the American government. And the shogun was a lot more hostile towards the American government. So when the U.S. and their, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, their insistence on getting involved in foreign countries' personal domestic matters, which they did, they supported the imperial court. And oh, what do you know? The imperial court wins that war. I wonder if the American and British military and economic support for the imperial side helped in any way. It did. And this Boshin War essentially becomes part of what most people would consider the Meiji Restoration, right? So the Tokugawa, once the Americans show up and decide that they don't get to be government anymore, they don't get to be government anymore. And they financially and militarily support a different government, the emperor, right? So this kind of has to be odd for the to you know for for the people of japan trying to figure out what's going on because you have one group of people saying we need to be the nativist group relying on foreign powers to kick out foreign influence in their own country that has been in their country for a thousand years right so they're using the americans to help re-establish nativist supremacy in the islands um this meiji restoration is essentially the fall of the Tokugawa and the rise of Emperor Meiji. That's his name. And he's restored to power. He's restored with the help of uh, the warlords who are ultranationalists who want to, you know, re return to a, a golden golden period of Japan and, uh, and the Americans with their uh, zeal for wanton destruction and war. Now, the actual Meiji restoration like the establishment of the emperor just and becoming officially the head of government and the most powerful entity in the islands again is peaceful. The problem is that afterwards, 
when the other warlords find out, they're like, ah, we're not too into that. And then they start bloody, bloody wars, which are then considered rebellions or incidents. Um, but one, the most prominent one is the, um, the Satsuma Rebellion. The, you know, the Satsuma Domain took over the Ryukyu Kingdoms. And they, actually, we talked about them before. Southern Kyushu, they were the Hayahito, the same region that has historically continuously fought the Imperial Court. Once again, fought the Imperial Court. It's kind of like what they do. Um, and this is also known as the War of the Southwest, right? This is also the war that's addressed in the novel and film The Last Samurai. And this is the final nail in the coffin of the Shogun. And basically any meaningful resistance against Imperial Restoration. What type of Imperial Restoration? The Meiji Restoration. Now, the Meiji Restoration would open up the doors to Japan, or of Japan, the Japanese doors, to the world. And it would like usher in an accelerated growth and economic development that would bring Japan into the modern world. Well, at least the, the modern world of the late 19th century. Now, the Tokugawa period, overall, because it's over now, sorry. The Tokugawa period was a period of isolation, of internal development and stewing conflict. The Tokugawa period is when modern Japanese nationalism was born. And it's also when Kabuki was created. Tokugawa Japan was one of the most significant periods for the development of modern Japan because it solidifies what we think of when we think of traditional Japanese culture. Next time, we open the doors to the world with the Meiji era and see how the 200 years of isolation meet with the inexorable tide of European, American, and other foreign cultures. Exciting. Woo! Tokugawa. That's a, that's a period for you. If, um, if you're interested in learning more about the Tokugawa period, and you're in Japan, if Japan ever lets foreigners back in it, I get, oh, boom, full circle. COVID restrictions, can't go into Japan anymore. Um, will they ever lift them? I don't know. Maybe we have to wait another 200 years. <laughs> but um, if you ever get to go back to Japan, or if you ever have the opportunity to, or you can sneak in like a pirate, the Edo Museum is like just this whole period in a building. First of all, it's a beautiful building. It doesn't, it's not traditionally Japanese, but it's, it's a cool building. You go up into it and they have like a mini layout of, of Edo in the building. Um, and they have like all these mock, mock buildings. Google it. You can see it on the internet. It's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, go to it if you have the opportunity to. Tokugawa. Also the setting for the film Samurai X. Or the, I guess that's the, the TV show Ravoni Kenshin. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for today. I gotta go. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you learned something. I hope, uh, you know, got something out of it. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, send me an email. Uh, my email is at uh, incrediblediscourse at gmail.com. Uh, you can also hit me up on Twitter at increddis at, or at increddis. That's just it for Twitter. Um, that's it for today, and I am out. Oh, next time, Meiji Restoration going into the future. We're not Pre, we're not pre-war. Yes, we are pre-war. Pre-war Japan, Meiji era, Taisho. It's gonna be exciting. See you there. <laughs>